This is the Bartender Journey Podcast. It's the Bartender Journey Podcast number 215. My name is Brian Vincent Weber. Thanks for listening. Well, today on the show, we're talking all about gin. Apparently, the second Saturday of every June is World Gin Day. I didn't know this, uh, but it's been going on for several years, apparently. Didn't know about it. But uh, I've been wanting to dedicate an entire episode to gin anyway, so World Gin Day is a great excuse. And if you want to find out more about World Gin Day, you can go to worldginday.com and uh, on social media, if you use the hashtag World Gin Day, you can uh, get get involved. And there's even some competitions and things where uh, if you post well, go to worldginday.com to find out more about that, but they're, they're giving away some stuff. Um, it seems to be based in the UK, and uh, I'm not sure if they're shipping that stuff, the prizes, out of the UK. Don't know, but uh, anyway, worldginday.com has all the information. Today, uh, we're talking about gin, and we're going to talk with Tristan Stevenson. He's been on the show before. He's a bartender, bar owner, and author from England, and he wrote uh, several books. Uh, among others, he wrote The Curious Bartender's Gin Palace, which is just an amazing resource for gin knowledge and uh, everything that he researches. He researches it to the nth degree. So uh, he, has a, he has a lot of books. Uh, one, one about cocktails, one about, uh, just released one about rum. He has a great whiskey book. So uh, Tristan Stevenson, we'll have, we'll have links up to that stuff on bartenderjourney.net and uh, yeah, I hope you'll check out his books because they're really great. So that's our book of the week, uh, Tristan's Gin Palace book and we'll talk to Tristian in a few minutes. Also, later in the show, we'll talk to the Freys. Uh, they F-R-E-Y, and they're making a great gin out in Nevada, a state-grown gin, in fact. And uh, it's pretty rare for gin to be uh, grain to glass. Uh, you know, gin, well, we'll talk about it with Tristian later, but uh, a lot of times gin producers will import a very high-proof spirit, uh, redistill it with the botanicals, and uh, produce their gin that way. But uh, the Freys out in Nevada, they're, they're producing a delicious gin, and they actually grow the stuff right there distill it and bottle it right there on the estate so uh it's great stuff and uh we're gonna talk to them after after we talk to tristan so we're going to learn a lot about gin today but first we need to do a cocktail of the week we're talking about gin so i think the cocktail of the week it has to be none other than the martini martinis of course are classically made with gin but it's a weird thing now that so many people drink them with vodka so you better ask how they want it also, how much vermouth are you going to use? Olives, I guess, are the default, but a lemon twist is awesome. An orange twist is great too, and that's traditional. Bitters? Orange bitters go in a classic martini. And that vermouth, if it's good quality, fresh vermouth, it's great. On the other hand, if it's bad quality vermouth to begin with, and it's been sitting in the well for six months, you can't blame someone for asking for a extra, extra dry martini, because the vermouth tastes terrible. So here's how I made mine today. Two ounces of Frey Ranch Gin. One ounce Imbue Bittersweet Vermouth from Oregon. Two dashes of Regan's Orange Bitters, number six. Stir that with ice and strain it into a chilled cocktail coupe, which uh, has you know, a bowl shape, much better than the triangle shaped martini glasses. 
people end up spilling those things all over themselves and the, and the uh, servers, of course, spill them all over the trays. It's kind of silly. And uh, so uh, express the oils from a lemon twist or an orange twist into the drink. And you might want to rub that twist around the rim of the glass and drop it right into the drink. Every time I get somebody trying to be clever at the bar and brings up shaking, not stirred. Mr. Bond. James Bond. I always say, the reason James Bond ordered it shaken, not stirred is because that was the exception to the rule. So it's really supposed to be stirred. One time I was at an airport bar and this guy shook that drink. It, the martini, it looked like a Slurpee from 7-Eleven. There was so much ice in that drink. It was it was more like a pina colada than a martini. And uh, some people will say that shaking your martini bruises the gin or the, or the vodka. But I don't know what that means exactly. Bruises the gin. But, you know, there should be no shards of ice in your martini. That's the point. Another thing about the martini, are we stirring this drink with ice just to make it cold, or is there something else going on here? Well, you can do an experiment. Mix up a batch of martinis uh, with whatever proportions you like, but no ice, and uh, put half of that in the freezer to chill for, let's say, two hours, and keep the other half at room temperature, keep it covered, and uh, keep it until your your other batch is, is, is cold if from the freezer. Uh, after this one in the freezer is super cold, take the room temperature one and stir it with ice in a mixing cup for, let's say, 20 seconds or so, and taste the two side by side. Now, the one that came from the freezer is going to be cold, but hot from alcohol, because it's too strong. And the stirred one should be velvety and really pleasant to drink. It's been chilled, but it's also been diluted a bit from the melting ice. So you're adding water to this drink, and um, you know it might be, let's say, about 20% water at this point that you're adding from the melted ice. It's a really interesting experiment, and I hope you'll give it a try. Uh, it helped me really understand the martini a lot better after doing that experiment myself. Speaking of experiments, we had a lot of great feedback to last week's lime juice experiment. Hope you got a chance to take a listen to that. And we also talked about sustainability in bars on that show. And we thank David Eden Sangwell of the Bartender HQ uh, podcast for being our guest on last week's show and uh, and talking about that stuff with us. So uh, this is important stuff, uh, the sustainability issue, trying to reduce waste behind the bar and lessen our environmental impact. David and his co-host Sam did an entire episode about it recently, and they're planning another on the Bartender HQ podcast. I've been inspired myself uh, by these guys to think more about it and talk more about it on our show. I'm trying to put some stuff in practice behind my bar. I even heard from a listener who is working on a brand new bar program, and he told me that he now plans to look into efforts to incorporate sustainability into the new bar he's working on. So that's uh, really awesome. And uh, as I said, maybe we'll do a, a environmental or a sustainability tip of the week. Well, let's start it now. I found this tip on StarChefs.com. It says, ice equals water plus energy. Don't waste it. Don't automatically refill the ice bins. Wait until they truly get low and only add as much as you need to get through the rush. Ice is expensive to produce, both in terms of money and resources. Yeah, all that energy you uh, use to make the ice and the water uh, costs money and resources. So uh, do what you can to reduce your ice usage. That's our environmental or our sustainability tip of the week and then there's all those straws 
Every time I throw one in the garbage now, I think of you, David. Thanks for that. Well, I've uh, in the last week, I've taken to my using a little tasting cup instead of a straw to test my cocktails before they go out. And I don't know if people think I'm doing shots all night behind the bar, but uh, anyway, I'm saving the environment one straw at a time. Okay, let's talk to Tristan Stevenson. Hello, hello. Hi, Brian. How are you doing? Good. How are you, Tristan? I'm good, thanks. Sorry, I um, got my time zones wrong. I thought it was uh, another hour from now until we had a call. Oh, okay. <laughs> I should have should have sent you a meeting request earlier. Yeah, mm. I probably would have still made the mistake. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's fine. Well, thanks so much for doing this. It's all right. And uh, wow, your your gin book is is great. When you research something, man, you really research it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's. Um, I, I kind of go into a zone for six months or or whatever, and uh, yeah, don't really talk to anyone that much, and uh, get fully engrossed in it, and then kind of come out the other side with a finished book, All right. and then um, slowly forget everything that I researched over the over the years that follow. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a lot of information to keep in anyone's brain. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's why you have a book. You re- yeah. refer to it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Certainly, most people just uh, write it down in a notebook, but um, I have a published book instead that I can refer back to. <laughs> that's great. Well, of course, you have the, uh, the cocktail book, the whiskey book, the barista book, and uh, I think rum is next for you, right? Yeah, um, rum is out. It's out about now. Actually. Oh, it is. Well, let's uh, go into a little background on your bar endeavors. You've been involved with so many bars, I, I lose track. <laughs> yeah, myself and my business partner started a company about seven years ago called Fluid Movement, or seven and a half years ago, and we've opened, I think, seven or seven bars in that time, or two restaurants and five bars. We don't. Uh, with two of those places, we don't. We no longer have anything to do with. One of them got closed down, and the other one we sold. The first one was Pearl in in. They were all they were all London actually, apart from one. Um, the first one was Pearl, which was a kind of speakeasy cocktail bar type thing. Which you know, London's got plenty of places like that now. But um, and it seven years ago doesn't seem like that long, but it really didn't have many places like that at the time. And we were kind of right near the start of that whole kind of speakeasy thing over here. I mean, you know, in the in the in the US, you had it. Um, well, you had it for real, of course, uh, <laughs> right <laughs> during Prohibition, and then um, you know that kind of revival thing, especially in New York, it kicked off a lot earlier for you guys. Um, but it took a little while to get across the Atlantic. I mean, we had our own version of Milk and Honey here some fifteen years ago, but uh, the the real sort of speakeasy revolution in London didn't start until about seven years ago. Yeah, we were kind of near the front of it with Pearl. And then, yeah, we, we went on to open, we, I mean, on average, it's been a bar a year, I guess. Um, it didn't quite work wow. out that way. We did Whistling Shop, which we've, we've still got um, in East London, which is a bit more Victorian-inspired. Uh, we, we did a hot dog, a sort of American diner-type thing um, in North London called Dak & Sons, um, which had a bar up above it as well. Um, we opened a restaurant called Surfside in Cornwall, which is in the southwest of the UK. It's kind of where the, the it's where British people go on holiday. Um, so right. there's beaches and things like that. It's very very tourist driven. We had the restaurant actually closes for like five months of the year in the, in the winter. Okay. And then um, more recently, we started opening more bars in London, starting with Black Rock, uh, which is our whiskey bar basement bar with this incredible oak tree trunk table it's a five ton table um <laughs> uh, with whiskey maturing inside it um oh i and remember the, seeing a picture of that yeah that's, yeah that's yeah amazing the, the pictures of that are kind of flown around all over the place um the 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 cool thing about black rock is we 
unlike uh, pretty much every whiskey bar I've ever been to, we stock a lot of whiskey, but we don't organize them by region or even by country. Um, we organize them entirely by flavor. So we pick like six flavor groups for whiskey. So we've got, um, spice, sweet, smoke, fruit, uh, balance and fragrance. And, and all of our different whiskeys, whether they're American whiskey or Japanese, Scotch, Irish, um, or world whiskeys, uh, are, are positioned in different cabinets based on their flavor groups. So you may find that you have, yeah, an American whiskey next to an Irish, next to a Japanese, um, (laughs) They tend to kind of, uh, like you, for example, in the sweet category, it tends to be quite a few bourbon whiskeys in there. Right. Spice, you know, is, 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 is like rye whiskeys and so on. But it'll, it mixes it up. And the idea is to sort of break down the category into the lowest common denominator, which is flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that everyone can engage with. Uh, everyone has an opinion on flavor. And uh, so you can come in as a novice or as an expert, because if you, you find a whiskey in the cabinet that you like, the chances are the whiskey sitting next to it's going to be something else that will interest you as well. And you may not have had that one before. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And then, yeah, just very recently, we, so Black Rock is a basement bar, being in a basement, there's of course a building above it, which uh, is a four story building. And it was just recently we took possession of that whole building. Oh, wow. We've just opened two more bars in that building and uh, also a hotel room. And so we're calling it London's smallest hotel because uh, <laughs> it's only got one room. But it does have three bars. Um, <laughs> nice. Well, let's, uh, let's get into gin a little bit. First, first of all, the definition is kind of a little vague, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, well, the thing is the definition of gin um, is, legally is not, it's not that vague. It's just the fact that uh, the, the, the regulations are... Um, kind of flaunted so regularly these days that mm. it no, you know no one's really policing it and and if they did it would it would be um, a terrible problem because there are so many gin brands and uh, that are especially um, with European regulations who, who are uh, you know kind of running away with the rules a little bit um, you know this whole classification that it's supposed to be a juniper forward spirit and um, that's the that's the dominant flavour. Well, you know, that's just clearly not the case with a lot of gins that are being produced these days. That's not to say they're bad products, and some of them are great. Right. But, yeah, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, probably a conversation there that, you know, it's a conversation that's happened a lot already. It's a, I do feel it's a category that's uh, becoming increasingly convoluted. And the problem is, of course, that gin is a reasonably easy product to make. Um, you know, it doesn't take very long. Right. And, the, you know, the reason for the large number of craft distilleries that are making it. And of course, in the, you know, in the US, you've got a lot of producers making gin, but you've also got a hell of a lot of small producers making whiskey as well. It's different to that in, in the UK and in Europe. There's very few craft whiskey uh, or, or aged spirit producers that have popped up because people are quite aware that there's a time element to that. You can't make whiskey overnight. Now, with bourbon whiskey in America, of course, you know, you only need a couple of years and you can start bottling stuff. Yeah. Um, whereas over here with Scotch whiskey, it's the same, same, it's three years, but, um, you know, three year old Scotch generally is not a particularly great product, yeah. um, because of the climate and everything. So they turn to gin and it's a, it's a, it's, you know, reasonably quick and easy process. I mean, I've, you know, I used to have a little distillery in my house and I've made gin and you can make a palatable product, um, without too much difficulty. So then the marketplace becomes crowded with all these gins that are trying to vie for your attention. And the natural temptation is to ensure that your product is interesting and different to everyone else's. And so the more people that are doing that, the more this sort of whole concept of gin becomes hazy because everyone is deviating from that kind of juniper-driven 
core kind of model that the tankeries and beef eaters of this world fit into. Gotcha. Um, you know, I, I, I wrote the book and selected whatever it was, 50 or 60 distilleries, thinking, you know, that, that's a, a, a good kind of um, reasonably comprehensive um, look on, on the world of gin. And like every day that goes by, there's more coming along. You're like, oh, well, this is a snapshot at best. Um, you know, it does kind of cover the category. Um, I, I feel like, you know, it touches on the extremities and, and there's a stronger focus on the older brands. Um, but, you know, it's, it's true that, you know, if you buy that book now and, and read it cover to cover and memorize the whole thing, you've still got hundreds of brands out there that um, you know might get a passing mention in the in the appendix, or might not be mentioned at all. Um, either because you know I wasn't aware of them, or because they're they're new. Right, right. But the, well, the history of gin is sort of traced back to Geneva, right? In fact, I think a modern Geneva fits into the definition of gin. Am I getting that right? Yeah, certainly the history of gin starts with with Geneva. But I mean, it's. Um, a lot of people haven't even tried Geneva, and I think people do try and expect to find a more ginny version of gin. Yeah. But that's really not what you've got there. It's Geneva is is really it's more similar to whiskey than it is gin, and the, the juniper component of Geneva has been sort of played down more and more over the years to the point where you, a lot of Genevas you try them and you really can't taste the juniper um, component of it at all. So it, it, yeah, for, I think. The best way to describe Geneva is somewhere in the region of a, a kind of blended Scotch whiskey with a little bit of um, gin thrown in there. I didn't know a lot of different Geneva brands when I started researching the book. And when I did, I, it became clear to me that actually Geneva needed to be a component of the book because it was really important in the history history of gin. And it's a, a category that just doesn't get a great deal of exposure. And the EU law, it doesn't fit. Um, it, it comes under the juniper spirits category, but it's its own sort of sub-definition um, because Geneva has different styles, young and, and old, and they have different production methods, including barrel aging, all that sort of stuff. But it's, uh, it is a fascinating product and, and one that deserves a bit more attention. I mean, the, you know, much of the production process is very similar to whiskey and the production of the malt wine that they make. You know, with the older expressions of Geneva, you know, 10, 12, and I think the oldest um, bottle Geneva is about 18 years old. You get some really interesting products there um, that really just have very little um, traction outside of of, um, of the Netherlands or of Belgium. Right, right. So, but let's start about let's talk about the uh, production methods. Basically, gin starts as a very high ABV alcohol, right? Like I, th- I think you said, it's basically an undiluted vodka in the beginning. Yeah, um, it's exactly that. I mean, you start with neutral spirit as as the base. Um, it, it's you know basically the um, the canvas, I suppose, on which um, you know these botanicals get to play out. I mean, if you if you started with a um, a more characterful base spirit. Well, all you're really going to be doing is kind of nullifying, or, or um, sort of losing some of the, the the clarity of the botanicals that you get in the final product. So yeah, you start with uh, a neutral spirit, which w- if water was just added to it, it would be something that you could classify as vodka. Um, it doesn't matter what the base of that spirit is. It could be potato, grain, uh, molasses. It, it, I say it doesn't matter. Like legally, it doesn't matter. Um, but I would also argue in in almost every instance that it doesn't matter from a flavor standpoint what um, the base product is of that because you're going to redistill it again um, with with flavorings and 
virtually any trace of that base material is going to get lost. I mean, you know, if you, if you try doing a vodka tasting, you can sometimes pick out what base material the, the product is. If it's rye, it's spicy, if it's potato, it's creamy. But by the time you redistill it with fruits and spices and all that kind of thing, a lot of that um, distinction is going to be mitigated. So, yeah, you t- you, as a gin distiller, you take delivery of your, your high-strength spirit. You cut it back with water to a lower strength. Now, that varies according to the distillery, but it's, it's usually somewhere in sort of 50 60% ABV. That, that's a good strength for um, extracting the, the, the aromatics out of the botanicals. And it's really, distillation of, of botanicals is really a, a process of extracting um, aromatics because aromas, by definition, are volatile. They, they evaporate um, or they carry off a product and they go into your nose. And so we, we want those aromatics to do exactly that same thing when they're inside the still. They may be steeped in the spirit or they may, um, they may just be put in and then the distillation process start immediately and that would be where heat is applied to the mixture of botanicals and spirit and the alcohol will begin to boil and um, as it carries up the neck of the still, these are pot stills that um, gin is being made in, the, the aromas will travel over with the ethanol and it will condense on the other side, and you'll collect something that's, that's trapped some of those aromatic particles inside a spirit that would have been stronger than what you started with. Um, that's how most um, London dry gins, that legal classification of London dry gins, are made. Um, you can also produce it by um, a process of vapor infusion. And, and what all that means really is that the botanicals are not steeped in the liquid, but they're kind of suspended in a basket somewhere along where the spirit vapor travels. And so that vapor will pass through. Um, as vapor rather than a liquid, and it will um, extract some of the aromatics along the way. It tends to make a lighter style of gin. Um, Bombay Sapphire would be the typical example of, of gin made that way. Some producers do a combination of both as well, actually. Yeah, uh, it was interesting. Uh, you brought up in the book that uh, you kind of credited Bombay Sapphire to a bit of a revival of, of the category of gin. Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, um, you know, Bombay Sapphire can be a bit divisive, Um because it's quite a light style of gin, and Bombay have never had any um, problems admitting that's exactly what it is, and it was designed that way as a as a means of getting vodka drinkers over to drinking gin. Um, and you know, if you taste it next to other London dry style gins that are made in the sort of steep and boil process, then you know you can't help but notice it is a lighter lighter style product. But I don't think we'd be having the conversation today about a gin book that I published and the revival of gin um, and, and the, the huge number of distilleries that are opening at the moment if it were not for Bombay Sapphire because they definitely gave the category a bit of a kick up the ass. Wow. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that's it really. And you collect, you collect, um, you collect this spirit which has got the, uh, the, these, aroma, this, these aromas in it now. Um, the botanicals themselves, of course, you can use anything you like in there. Um, juniper uh, would always be included. And as I said, legally it ought to be the, the dominant um, flavor, but I'd say these days more often than not it isn't. Um, other botanicals, Angelica um, would be one that appears quite a lot. Um, Angelica sort of provides a kind of binding attribute to gin. So it, it brings sort of, it's, it's, it's lightly spiced, slightly kind of resiny, flavor and it kind of brings a lot of it harmonizes a lot of the other botanicals together coriander be another one and coriander is used actually um provides a sort of citrus aromas and um it can be gingery as well and it depends on how it's treated and different varieties of coriander 
Um, it's probably my favorite botanical, um, I would say, because it can play many different roles. Mm-hmm. And there are, you know, there's gins out there where you, you're convinced there's citrus zests in the in the list of botanicals, and there isn't. It's coriander. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, but but you will find citrus often in, in some gins, right? Sure, you will, yeah. Um, so your lemon peel, orange peel, grapefruit peels become a bit more common more recently. I have some uh, Death's Door gin here, and yeah. uh, boy, that has a lot of big licorice flavor, or an- yeah. an- anise. I think Death Store has fennel in it. If oh, I'm not. maybe it's fennel. Okay. Yeah, I think uh. it, which of course has an anise flavor to it. I, I mean, I don't know every botanical of every gin off the top of my head, but I believe it. Do, you're absolutely right. I think there's quite a strong anise flavor on that one, and I think it comes from fennel seed. I mean, any other botanical, you pretty much you can think. I mean, if it grows. I would say these days it's probably been put in a gin. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, you're right. Yeah, it says actually it says on the bottle juniper, coriander, and fennel seeds. Oh, there you go. Which is uh, and, and that's something new. That, and you brought that up in the book that uh, it's new that for producers to be listing what they're using right on the bottle. Yeah, that's true. Actually, I mean, if you uh, you know you look at the old school gin producers, they wouldn't normally list it. Um, but you know. I, I, there's many reasons I think that gin has come back, become fashionable. You know, what, one of them would be that it's it's very cool to drink what your grandparents drank, not cool to drink what your parents drank. And <laughs> uh, my my grandparents drank gin. Um, my parents uh, not so much. Another word would be, um, you know, there's a, a drive towards provenance, understanding where your product comes from, craft, um, health as well. And gin fits into all of those categories. Health is not an obvious one, and of course, it's no more healthy for you than any other type of alcohol but um there's an illusion of health there with uh with the botanicals you know oh wow it's like five one of this is saying over in the u.s one of your five you know we're supposed to have five vitamins of fruit and vegetable a day this is what they say to us in the uk and uh you know you you could uh you could read a bottle of gin and um tell yourself that you might be getting maybe even more than five uh, because you've got all these fruits and herbs in there now of course uh you know the, the bits that are good for you uh, in these products don't end up in a bottle of gin. Right. But, um, but there is that kind of illusion of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know? And uh, so people love seeing that kind of stuff written on a bottle now, I think, and going, oh, cool, okay, this has got, this has got rosemary in it. And then, you know, and, and you can use that information when it comes to uh, serving it as well. So, oh, right, there's, there's rosemary in it, or there's cucumber in it, or, or there's, uh, you know, fresh fruit in it. Well, that's what I'll garnish it with. And, you know, that, you stick a sprig of rosemary and a, and a um, you know, slice of orange in a drink, and you can drink that with a little bit less guilt uh, <laughs> than you might feel with um, some other drinks, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, like a Manhattan with a uh, nasty, <laughs> nasty cherry in the bottom. Yeah, well, that's, that's still one of your five a day, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, well, so back to the production methods, some, some will use multiple methods, right? Like like Hendrix, for example. And I, I don't think we can talk about gin without mentioning Hendrix because that's another <laughs> one that really jump-started the category, I think, and, and brought um, people that were afraid of gin back back to gin. Yeah, sure. I, um, and uh, for a couple of different reasons, I think. Yeah, I mean, with the, the, uh, one of the other methods um, besides what I described with, with steeping botanicals and boiling it is, um, is using compounded flavors. Now, a lot of the cheaper gins do exactly this. It, under EU law, they're not allowed to be um, classed as London dry gin. I'm not, not 100% sure what the law is in the US. It's certainly in the book, but I can't remember off the top of my head. But these um, compounded gins, rather than kind of getting a selection of botanicals and distilling them, the, the, the extracts, if you like, will be bought in. But many of these extracts are actually made through a process of distillation. 
It's just that they um, they've done it in a slightly more industrial manner, I suppose you'd say. There's a little bit more less ro- less romance to it. Yeah, um, some, some I guess with the less expensive brands would are like artificial. I mean, it's basically like making flavored vodka, right? Yeah, I, I mean, this is the thing. Some of them it may be in nature identical flavors, or it, 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 may, it may not. You know, if you're if you're buying a citrus extract, it may be um, there's an artificial component to it. Um, often you don't know. Often you're not told, and you, and by law you don't need to be told. Mm-hmm. Um, so some some of these cheap brands are made in, in just that way. It's kind of a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Mix it all together. It tastes like gin. We're done. Yeah. Uh, but you're right. It's, um, and, you know, there aren't many producers that would mix the two methods. So there wouldn't aren't many that would would distill, um, you know, juniper and coriander, angelica, and then mix in some compounded uh, components afterwards. But that is what Hendrix do. Right. Uh, um, for the cucumber and for the rose component of their gin. You know, uh, that's because you can't really stick cucumber in a pot still and boil it up and expect to get a nice flavor on the other side because yeah. you just flavor of kind of stewed, stewed mushy vegetable. Uh, and the same goes for, for rose. You have to take a different approach to it. Mm. Uh, and mm. you, could do it, you could do it in a vacuum still, like a rotary evaporator type thing because they operate at much lower temperatures. Is that the pressure method, or is that something that, that I know? Um, low, low pressure, yeah, low pressure. Right. Uh, so um, there are there are gin producers that are, are producing in this manner, and yeah, you, low pressure, so it's lower temperature. For for traditional botanicals like spices and and dried fruits, um, it just extracts a sort of different cross section of the aromatic profile of that of that botanical. But for um, softer fruits and flowers and some soft herbs. Um, it's kind of essential way. You have to do it that way um, because you, all you're going to get is a cooked flavor and not a kind of natural representation of, let's take cucumber as an example. Right, um, right. Hendrix, you know, they, they outsource um, the manufacture of those compounded products and then they mix it in after they've distilled it. Voila, you get a, you get a gin with a certain level of those uh, particular flavors. For me, Hendrix doesn't taste that much of cucumber. Um, the rose. Yeah, yeah me either. In fact, I was talking to the brand ambassador for uh, Hendrix here in the U.S. one time, and I was like, is, is it actually made with cucumber? He said, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's funny because, of course, everyone mixes it. Everyone puts cucumber in it when they, they make a cocktail or yeah. a, a gin and tonic, and then, lo and behold, it tastes of cucumber. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's a very clever product. You know, the Victorian-style medicinal bottle, um, getting people to start garnishing gin and tonics with something other than citrus fruit. Um, and the cucumber thing was a stroke of genius, and um, the, the marketing's uh, yeah genius. Yeah, it is. it is. Yeah, <laughs> and, and you know, if Bombay Sapphire started that whole um, the whole revolution of gin, then certainly Hendrix are the the one that have um, helped helped keep it going. You know, so I think Hendrix launched in about two thousand two thousand and one. You know, it's from then onwards that we've really started to see things change in the category. That's right. Yeah. Well, should we talk about one shot and multi shot? It seems to be a little bit of a sore subject with you in the book, but uh, I had never yeah. heard the, I had never heard the term before before I read it in your book. Yeah, I mean, it's not a very good term, really. It doesn't it, it's it doesn't really describe what's happening particularly well, but it seems to have been the term that stuck, and it's it's the term that gym producers tend to use. So um, uh, when I was describing um, steep and boil gins, uh, you know, I mentioned that. You add botanicals to spirit, you distill it, and you, what you collect is your, is your gin, and it contains the aromatics of the botanicals. You cut it down to bottling strength with water, and you put it in the bottle, and you're done. 
Now, that's the way that most people imagine gin is made uh, when, when they, once they've got an understanding of, of, of what I've just described. Um, and it's even the way that a lot of like industry professionals, I think, imagine that, that gin is made um, when it's made in the, in the London dry style. Uh, yeah, um, that's how I always thought it was made. Yeah, yeah. And, and, um, and some are and some aren't. And some, some are made that way, yeah. Uh, some are not. Now, the other way of doing it is um, that you, you add more botanicals into the pot in the first instance. So you, you make a more concentrated gin by, by adding extra botanicals in. It's like, you know, you put more of the product in, what you get out the other side is going to be stronger. It's like putting five tea bags in your, in your cup of tea instead of one. Right. And so what you end up with is a kind of concentrated gin. That means you can then water that product down more with not just water, but also neutral spirit. Right. So uh, it's, it's a time and cost-saving process. Yeah, um, yeah. I say it's cost-saving. It's only cost-saving because it saves you time. Right. Um, which, which means that you can multiply up the quantity of botanicals you put in the pot and therefore multiply the quantity of liquid you get out uh, by diluting it with more neutral spirit and, uh, and, and of course, water, which you're, you're going you're gonna to do no matter what um, process you're using. Right, right. Now, it, it's a little bit it's frowned upon by, by some people, and I'm going to stay on the fence with this one uh, because uh, there's so many producers that use each method. It would, I, I wouldn't like to side with one or the other. Right, and I have right. done taste tests um, with multi-shot and single-shot. Single-shot, by the way, would be, of course, the process of just distilling gin, cutting it in water and putting it in the bottle. Multi-shot is, is what's used to describe these gins that are diluted down with neutral spirit afterwards. I've done taste tests of both, and I find it very difficult to tell the difference. Oh, wow. That must have been interesting. Yeah, um, and uh, I know there's distilleries that, are, that do the multi-shot process that, that run these tests quite a lot um, to sort of uh, you know, prove that what they're doing is not, um, you know, it's not bad, it's just smart business sense, you know? Sure, sure. It's one of those uh, things. It doesn't make it yeah. bad, necessarily. Yeah, yeah not necessarily. And it certainly doesn't make it bad. It might make it different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for me, I don't believe it does make it different. Um, wow, that's interesting. I, lo- I love that tasting things side by side that just have one variable, like you know, yeah. pot, pot still versus column still or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you can get hold of products where you know you you have only changed one variable, it's really interesting to see to see all the differences. Like, yeah, it is what it is. And you know, there are there are some distilleries that will um, you know use the fact that they're a one shot product in their marketing materials and in their tasting sessions and they'll proudly state all of this kind of stuff and there there are other distilleries that um, will try and hide the fact that they are a multi um, shot operation and then there are distilleries that are are in the middle there that you know they don't feel the need to say that they're a one shot they just it's always been that way and there are you know there are other ones that quite happily will tell you that they're a multi-shot distillery um, and they believe it doesn't matter because their product's great right Uh, I mean, a lot of the newer craft distilleries, um, it's quite interesting because they have bought reasonably small stills, uh, let's say 500 litre still, but stills that are big enough that they can make more product than they can sell. And so they are proudly proclaiming that they are a one-shot distil- distillery. Right, right. Uh, wait, wait till they get a big order that they weren't expecting. This is the thing. So once they get a bigger order, they either have to upgrade the size of their still buy another still, um, or they have to start making multi-shot gin. Um, right. Or if, you know, if they, the other, the other option being that if they don't sell enough product, then they're, 
they'll they'll probably just close down anyway, or or they'll they'll always stay the same as as these sort of multi stills. But if it was me, if I if I'd sort of installed this five hundred liter still, and three years down the line, I'm still having to distill four or five days a week uh, to, yeah. to so that I can call it a single shot gin. Um, I'd probably be thinking about now, maybe we should just distill once a week and do a multi shot. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> see how it goes. And yeah, taste them side by side. And uh, yeah, if exactly. It's, if it's good, it's good. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I mean, the only the thing is, there's and there's studies that probably need to be done on this. Let's say I was going to do uh, a multi shot gin uh, with with five times as much botanicals uh, in the same amount of spirit inside my pot still, and I distill it over and then I cut it down um, with five times the neutral spirit to the same strength. Now. Logically, you'd have to sort of say, well, that's going to be the same product as if you just did a one-shot distillation because you know, you've, you've used five times as much in the first place and you've cut back with five times as much spirit afterwards. I believe that's probably the case. There is an argument that at some point in time, you're going to reach a saturation point of um, aromatics within right. still. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether that happens at five times, whether it happens at 10 times, 20 times, 50 times, I don't know, and it's probably different for every single botanical based on the the, mm. the aromatic molecules that are going over. Right. But you will reach a saturation at some point. Just don't know when it is. Um, right. And at that point, once you've reached that saturation point, the multi-shot process falls down because, yes, you are going to be getting a, a different aromatic profile of your end product once you've cut it back. And not only that, but you're wasting botanicals in the process because the headspace of the still is saturated at one time or another mm. and, uh, and 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 not everything you're you're attempting to still is getting over right wow oh that's interesting well uh i won't make you describe each one but i, I will quickly uh list through the different styles of of gin so we have the uh, i guess geneva we can put in as a, as one style yeah yeah and then uh old old tom which is um well what, 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 that's a little sweeter than london dry yeah well, yeah, the, the kind of modern interpretation of it is that it's a slightly sweeter um, version of London Dry. Now, there are, again, with gin, there's always there's people that will argue to the contrary. But uh, the older recipes that have been kind of found for Old Tom tend to either use sweeter botanicals uh, and, uh, and more of them, or they tend to use sugar. Um, or some sort of sweetening agent um, after the product has been made. Now, Old Tom kind of forms a little bit of a link um, between perhaps the Genevas that were available uh, being produced and coming into the UK in the 18th century and London Dry Gin, which kind of came about um, in the uh, kind of early, well, late 19th century, early 20th century. So it sort of forms this bridge and it was the kind of go-to gin of that particular era, the Victorian era. And then it sort of ran its course. Taste became drier. People shifted over to this sort of new style of London dry gin. Right, which doesn't have to be made in London, right? <laughs> no, not at all. No, this is, it's, uh, it, it's London dry gin basically only describes that it's, the product is distilled uh, using botanicals, so it's not compounded, in other words. And uh, juniper is supposed to be the, mo- the more dominant flavor. It's got to be... Um, in the in the Europe, it's got to be bottled above thirty seven point five. In the US, it's forty percent ABV. That is for 80, 80 proof, and that's about it. Yeah. And you say in the book, a maximum of point one gram sugar per liter can be added. 
Moving on to Plymouth Gin actually did have a place, a particular region where it needed to be made, but now that's not the case anymore. Is that correct? Yeah, that's true. I actually live only about an hour from Plymouth, so uh-huh. um, it was a kind of it was part of it was a, it was a, was its own category category, and it was something that was a little bit closer to my heart because it was uh, local. It's delicious but, too. Yeah, it's good gin. Um, it was about three, two, three years ago now. Uh, the EU, uh, European Union got in touch with them at Gin and asked them to provide a dossier on why they, uh, you know, what were the sort of organoleptic properties, what the, the characterization of Plymouth Gin and why it, basically why it should have its own category still. And there's, at that point, gins being made in virtually every city in the UK and, you know, elsewhere besides that didn't have a, a classification. Um, Plymouth Gin, when it, when it was still classified as its own particular style of gin, um, did have some rules, one of which was that it had to be made in Plymouth. Uh, one was that it had to be made using water that was local to Plymouth uh, from, from Dartmoor, which is, is the nearby hills. Um, and there was another classification to do with um, botanicals as well. I think it was um, it had to be made from only sweet botanicals. Now, Plymouth Gin themselves, which is owned by Pernod Ricard, chose not to supply um, the European Union with this information and to allow the classification to subside. Now, by the way, that's my understanding of the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it may, there may, may be elements that are not entirely correct, but that, that, that's pretty much how it went, I think. It was interesting they did that because you look at that and you're like, why would you choose to do that? You know, you've got a product that's made in Plymouth and it's got its own classification of gin. That's pretty cool. It's something yeah. that you can shout about. Yeah, yeah. But then you start to think about it and you're like, well, actually, um, if I had opened a distillery in Plymouth, I could have called it Plymouth Gin. Now, there's a problem there, of course, for Plymouth Gin because they use Plymouth Gin as their brand name and they wouldn't be able to stop me or you or anyone else from also putting Plymouth Gin on their bottle. And so then you've kind of got a bit of an issue from Plymouth Gin's perspective because they're like, well, actually, then you could have dozens of different gins all with Plymouth Gin written on them. Yeah. And uh, you know that, that starts to become a problem. So um, I, I believe that the reason that they allowed the, the category to, to expire is for the, is is it's just that that um, you know it's sort of protecting um, their product. So I, I couldn't now start a distillery in in Plymouth and put Plymouth Gin on the bottle because um, I'd be infringement of their name. Right, right. That's <laughs> interesting story. Uh, so um, and then we have uh, the New Western, I guess, which we discussed already is is uh, probably the last category. And yeah. uh, so like Hendrix and um, I guess Bombay Sapphire fits into that as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, I'd say it probably is, is moving over towards that because it's not got a strong juniper flavor, um, and so you'd probably put it there. I don't know if I would. I mean, I would say I would say Bombay Sapphire is more of a very light London dry style gin. Mm-hmm. I mean, the what the the big one that is, is is quite well known and was around quite a while ago in the US, of course, is Aviation, right. um, which you definitely put in that. And and I know that you know that's a brand that's been kind of you know spearheading that movement towards new Western style gin. Um, but it's certainly not alone anymore. There are you know hundreds of gins there where you know it might be citrus uh, element that's at the forefront, or a floral element, or it could be spice. There's gins coming out over here which, I you know I would uh, I'm not going to name any names. I would really question whether they belong in a, in a in the gin category at all because they are they're botanical spirits and they're made in in that kind of traditional way. But there's 
there's no suggestion of juniper. It may well be in there, but it's it's lost under under other flavors. Um, and you know, they, they they some of them are really nice products. Some of them aren't. But should they be called gin? Probably not. You know, I can see why they'd want to be uh, because gin's so popular now, and you know, everyone's talking about it. And it, you know, people go into bars and they see a new gin and they want to try it. They want to try it with tonic. They want to try it in a martini. And you know, that's an inroad for these for these spirits. And maybe when the dust all settles in the future. There'll be a you know an assessment of of what we what we're left with what's you know what survived the test of time and what hasn't. Why are gins most often bottled at a pretty high ABV relative to say vodka or even whiskeys? It's an interesting one. If you if you've ever tried um, taking a, a gin, uh, if you start if you take a gin that's reasonably high strength, you know like, like a, a, above ninety proof, let's say, um, and there's plenty that are even higher than that, and try. Uh, pour out four or five glasses of it and then add a, a splash of water to each one and put increasing amounts of water in, in, in each gin. What you're basically doing then is, is cutting the gin down to different strengths. Mm-hmm. So you're playing master distiller. Try nosing them and try tasting them and you find you get quite different products yeah. as, you, as you move down um, in, or up in strength. And um, it's just a curious thing that the, the aromatics of the gin uh, uh, display themselves differently um, based on the ratio of alcohol and water inside the the glass, um, oh, okay. and so um, gin gin producers you know bottle up these different strengths to sort of showcase different um, botanicals. But it, it, I say it's weird because of course no one really drinks gin neat um, unless you're in a tasting session or you're a distiller. Uh, you, you don't right. generally pour yourself a glass of gin, a uh, neat gin, and just start sipping on it. You know, you put it in. It's a mi- it's a mixing spirit. So the it kind of becomes a bit null and void the whole difference in in ABV and and in, and in strength uh, because of that. Right. Um, there's another reason as well um, to bottle gin at higher strength, which is less uh, less important these days. But some uh, botanicals, when you distill them, you, you can get oils that carry over uh, that are only soluble in higher strengths. Ah. So if you bottle it to lower strength, you actually get a cloudiness to to the product, um, which is mm-hmm. the same thing you see in absinthe. Um, right. It's like a louching effect, which is why why absinthe is always bottled at higher strength because there are a lot of those oils uh, found in absinthe. And if they bottled it at 40%, uh, all the bottles would be cloudy, which um, is usually a bit of a turnoff for for people. Oh, interesting. Uh, I, never, I never thought about it that way, but yeah, it yeah. makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, uh, just to wrap up, what what are besides the martini? What are uh, one or two of your favorite gin cocktails? Do you know, I, I'm a big fan of both um, the fizz and the ricky. So you know those kind of highball drinks with citrus uh, and and maybe some sugar thrown in there. I mean, gin fizz is one of my go tos. You know, if I'm if I'm struggling to decide what drink I want and I, I want something with some acidity to it, I often order a gin fizz and then knock it back pretty quickly. And by the time that's happened, I, I can work out what drink I really wanted. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, uh, and it's a good drink to drink quickly because um, you know, it's not usually served over ice and it's got that, that foamy sort of mousse-like quality to it. And so it, and it, it's a sort of palate cleanser, like a sorbet is, you know? Mm-hmm. And then the other one, yeah, Ricky. I really like a good Ricky like with salt in it uh, rather than sugar. So lime, gin, um, salt, and a little bit of soda. And again, I find that, like you know, you get a minerality there from from the lime oils and the uh, and the salt 
that that works as a as a great cleanser as well. And you know, like on a hot day, God, you know what? I'm actually I, I might go out and get some limes and make one now. But <laughs> <laughs> on a hot day, um, you know, like a little a pitcher uh, with some gin and lime and salt and soda in it with plenty of ice poured outside uh, is is absolutely fantastic. Um, Sounds great. I'll be right yeah. over. <laughs> well, Tristan, thanks so much. I don't want to take up any more of your time. I really appreciate uh, your input and your expertise. No problem. It's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Tristan. I'll be All in right. touch. Cheers, man. Bye. Cheers. Well, I learned so much from that conversation with Tristan and from his book, The Curious Bartender, Gin Palace. And uh, well, uh, I hope you learned something too. And we'll have a link up to that uh, book up on bartenderjourney.net along with the posting that goes with this show. And uh, I hope you'll uh, go over to bartenderjourney.net and click through to Amazon through any of those links. Helps out helps, uh, helps out with the show just a little bit when you click on one of those Amazon links on bartenderjourney.net. It doesn't cost you any extra. And remember, we have a tip cup page, and we'd like to thank Al for contributing to the tip cup page this week. And uh, if you'd like to see this show, keep going. If the show's helped you out a little bit or entertained you, or in any way has helped you out we'd love to um, have your support keeping it going you can go to bartenderjourney.net slash tip cup i haven't mentioned the tip cup page in a while but uh we could really use your support keeping the show going there's uh, a lot of expenses associated with putting a show like this on including uh traveling all the way to tales of the cocktail to new orleans in a few weeks so uh, we're going to be bringing you a lot of interesting and exciting content from tales of the cocktails coming up soon and uh, we'd love your support to keep it going hey i mentioned earlier in this show we were going to talk to the good people at Frey ranch they make a great gin it's Frey ranch estate distillery and they make a great gin a barrel aged gin they make a rye they make a vodka and uh we're going to talk to them i was going to put it on this show the gin episode but you know what we had such a great conversation with uh tristian and then a great conversation with the Frey ranch people so we're going to save that till next time and we'll talk about talk about gin again next time on the bartender journey podcast Hey, my name's Brian Vincent Weber. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can find us on Facebook. Just search for Bartender Journey. Go to uh, Instagram and find us on the same thing, Bartender Journey, and uh, follow us there. You can go over to Twitter. I don't, I've not been using Twitter so much recently, but uh, it's Barkeep Tips on Twitter. And, of course, the website, bartenderjourney.net. And get in touch with us on bartenderjourney.net. There's a contact page there. There's a survey page, Bart bartenderjourney.net slash survey and uh, we'd love to hear hear from you and uh, find out more about you and you can go over there and answer a few questions you can do it with a google doc but uh, I'd love to have you record your answers to the questions so if you record your answers to the questions email it to me at brian at bartenderjourney.net maybe you'll you'll hear yourself on the show all right here's our toast to the thirst that is yet to come cheers we'll see you next time on the bartender journey podcast I delivered the message. Now what?